Before we get into it, I need to remind you that the Football Index podcast is supported by footballindextrader.co.uk, the best site for in-depth scouting and trading strategy. For the first time, you can now check out a free tour of the members' content before you sign up. Just go to the homepage and click on the Take the Tour button to see a whole month of player scouting from this season and some sample member articles too. As an exclusive offer for podcast listeners, you can give the site a try with a 25% discount on your first month with FIG. 25. That's over on footballindextrader.co.uk. Hello and welcome back to the Football Index podcast, episode 142. It's been a crazy couple of weeks, hasn't it? With miscommunications, announcement on dividend increases and plans for the sellholders what better than to bring in another couple of amazing guests so last week we had fi ben and data steven definitely go check out episode 141 this week i'm joined by a couple of guys who had my eye on for a while i tend to basically follow people stalk them for a while until i see that they're ready for the big cast first up rob cheese right how are you doing mate i'm good thank you how are you not too bad do you regret not making an fi specific account at this point Oh, completely. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I had it in my mind that I was going to stay true to this. You know, I'm a rounded person. I've got a professional Twitter account and it's mostly about energy. So if you look at my feed, there's not much football index on there. I mostly reply to people and I'll continue to have other interests outside of that. But the reality is 99% of what I tweet about is football index. So I think all the energy people that follow me are like, what the hell? I need to split it out. I need a football index one. Maybe this podcast will be the kind of perfect launchpad for that, right? Do a little comms piece. I've now officially transitioned to X account. It could be. And then, you know, the, you're, sort of, you're part of the Football Index establishment once you've been on the Figcast. So, you know, this is my launch moment, isn't it? I ought to come out. <laughs> yeah, the coming out party in a weird way. We're also joined by Football Index LL. How are you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Rob, I forgot to ask if you'd like to tell people a little bit more about yourself and your football index journey before I move back over to LL? Yeah, so I've never been a gambler or a trader, really. I mean, I had like £40 on a Betfair account, but I was a massive, massive football nerd and massive football manager fan to the point where I spent all my private time on football manager. So I think that's the kind of background. And I joined in April and put like 20 quid on, just slowly topped up the same story that all your guests tell you. And all my betting on Betfair, when I look back on it, was long-term bets. It was things like, X club to stay up and I'd make mm. that bet right at the start of the season. So I was always looking for something where the vagaries of an individual game and you know any any own goal or red card ruins your bet wasn't part of it. I always wanted something I could do where long term and strategy was part of it. And so when I started getting served Twitter ads for Football Index, I think after about three or four of them I was like, okay, I need to join this. It suited me perfectly because it's long term, it's strategic, you know, your state doesn't get swiped off the table when you lose it's just everything I wanted really awesome that's a great story really I know that I've like you dabbled in the kind of season-long markets on Betfair before and Skybet some with success some with not but I tended to enjoy that a bit more I remember doing a few like laying Burnley relegation quite a few times because Sean Dyche just somehow always keeps them up but for some reason bookies always had them or the market had them at kind of quite short odds to stay up which is interesting LL, what about you? What about your background? What's your football index journey been like? Yeah, so I heard about the platform almost a year ago now through YouTube, actually. And it was like the stock market element that really interested me personally, as I'd been analysing and paper trading quite successfully in a few markets for quite a few years. And then like when I turned 18, I'd begun trading. 
So then I thought like I'd give Football Index a look when I heard about it because like I found markets really like interesting and fun. So I thought like if you combine football and markets together, surely it would be really enjoyable. But as like it was the only official gambling I've ever done, I took it really slowly at start and just took it quite cautiously. Just analyzed the market for a few months and then as my initial deposit was growing and as I felt more confident in the platform and my understanding of it in the market, I started to make like more regular sizable deposits and just, yeah, fell in love with the platform. It's like, it's really fun, educational and profitable at the same time. And I think there's not really much more you can ask for, especially in like a gambling product. Interesting. I mean, really great to hear quite a diverse background here. You know, LL, obviously you coming from a more market side and Rob coming more from the just pure football passion side. It's going to be a great, great pod. I can already tell. But before we get into it, I have, of course, launched the Patreon as about five or six weeks ago. It's going really well. Over 50 members. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining. Even with the pesty VAT tax on top of that, people are still joining, which says something, I suppose. There's £3, £5, £8 and £12 tiers. So different perks for different sized accounts and different people, depending on how much they want to spend. And also, we did a webinar last week, or this week, was it maybe? This week on Monday with Panda, all about the matching engines, also talking about the Football Index business model, how that's developed with MEs in place, how much more important valuing players is. And loads of people gave us amazing feedback. So if you guys want to do check it out, head over to patreon.com forward slash FI guide. So that's patreon.com forward slash FI guide and join the very fast growing community at the Fig Patron. So we've got a couple of miscellaneous questions here. FI Headhunter from the Fig Discord. If you had to choose us a cheese, which cheese would you choose? Us. <laughs> I don't really know why he's phrased it like that. But Rob, favourite cheese? I was going to get a question like this, wasn't I, with my surname? <laughs> cheese White. It's almost embarrassing with the surname, but a really boring cheese like cheddar or mozzarella. That's my go-to. Oh yeah, fair enough. I mean, who doesn't like a bit of cheddar or mozzarella? Staples of the cheese community, aren't they? <laughs> they are. <laughs> what are your thoughts on, you know, other dairy products such as almond and full fat milk? I think Panda went on quite a strange rant in the last podcast or the extra extra cast about how almond and coconut milk just isn't real milk. Yeah, I've never really had much almond or coconut milk. I've always just had like full fat milk. Mm, interesting. I'm a semi-skim man myself, so I like oat milk. So oh. Panda's gonna hate me even more. Yeah, he hates you nearly as much as he hates FBI Trader at this point, doesn't he? <laughs> and I've not done anything to usurp him. <laughs> oh, we've got a question here from Lewis Perry. This is an interesting one. I don't know why I've put this in the miscellaneous questions, but what challenges have you both come across during COVID-19 for Football Index with your own portfolio? Thank you, guys. For FI, I remember like on the day of the spreads massively increasing and turning off instant sell, it was in the morning. I was like three or four percent down, I think. So I chose to liquidize about six percent of my portfolio just as like a precautionary measure with the view to reinvest. And then I think I went as far down as maybe like six percent. But then around like mid-March, I made a deposit of pretty much like half my portfolio value as there was like two consecutive days of pretty much the market leveling out. So then I just stocked up on loads of players like at huge discounts and just started structuring my portfolio completely with the next two to five years in mind. Because like we knew there was obviously huge uncertainty over the next six months at the time. But in terms of two to five years, there was no real uncertainty. Football was going to be back. Young players especially weren't going to be too badly affected by it. And then I'd, near the end of the month, I did more like trend trading just in anticipation of Bundesliga coming back first to then sell at a peak and then try come back in at a discount which the matching engine has obviously allowed for even bigger discounts than we were anticipating 
all in all, like for my portfolio, COVID's actually been pretty good despite being quite rough at the start. But I think you just need to like look at it as like nothing really changed for a lot of my holds personally. So it was more just buy more rather than panic because luckily I didn't have to withdraw any money. I just withdrew some as like a precautionary measure in terms of players that I thought were going to continue to drop and had tight spreads that morning. But then like I was really lucky because literally in the afternoon, all the spreads had been widened and instant sale was turned off. Mine's a similar story, really. So my port was set up for young players and I have a couple of principles at play on Football Index. I mean, one is don't have more on there than a quite small proportion of my savings so that I'm never stressed out by Football Index. It's always fun. And I always want it to be fun. Even if I had loads of money, I wouldn't put serious, serious sums on Football Index probably because the moment it stops being fun, it becomes work and I don't want that. That protected me from anxiety during COVID. And then secondly, that gives you the power to then top up and deposit. So as soon as it leveled out, similar to LL, I deposited. And then again, during the recent dip a couple of weeks ago, I deposited about, again, half my portfolio size, just because, you know, it's really clear that we were buying at discounts. So I, you know, similar story, really. I think COVID has done my portfolio wonders. And it comes from having confidence in the strategy and not over having invested in the first place. And I think that's one of the lessons I hope people learn from this and from the down period before a couple of weeks ago is have sensible approach to your investment on football index because if you're pulling out money to cover day-to-day costs you've put too much on in the first place mm. yeah i really agree with that personally and i actually think we're going to get onto it a bit more like later on in terms of like the whole emotional side of trading as well if you're able to be emotionally detached from it all you're gonna make far more consistent returns and you're gonna make far larger returns than if you're being emotionally influenced by your decisions. So with the responsible gambling slogan of only about what you can afford to lose, if you actually took that approach, it'll really help you actually in being able to just emotionally detach from it and your returns will genuinely be better as a result of that. And I actually think the protection we have with FI is as value is like determined really by like the cash flows, as long as there's some form of media or football there's reasonable cash flows throughout the market which can retain value. Whereas like for actual stocks, dividends have been postponed, revenues have been like decimated as a result of COVID. Whereas like for FI, as long as FI and football exist, the value is retained relatively. Mm. It's such an interesting conversation, honestly. I don't want to keep you guys from it anymore. I just need to plug Index Gain really quick. If you guys don't know what Index Gain are, they're an amazing third-party data provider. They're doing some amazing things. You can see all the previous PB scores of yesteryear. That's pretty important considering PB is staying the same for next season. And if you guys are interested in in accessing all those amazing reports, then head over to indexgain.co.uk. Use the code FIG2020 for five quid off your first month or one month free and five quid off your first month if you go for their six month plan. So really great stuff going on at Index Gain. Do go over and check them out over on indexgain.co.uk. Now let's get into the juicy bits, guys, the questions. So this was aimed at you actually, LL. Dr. Mel FI, as a value trader, do you believe in players like TAA, Sancho Mbappe bringing in divs or do you currently look for a higher cap app potential? Considering the market grows around 2.5x a year, currently it's unlikely the ones at the top will beat this. LL, I think it might be good if you define value trader first and then go on to answer this question. First of all, as a value trader, you want to basically trade or you want any trade to be at a good price in relation to like the intrinsic value, which like we'll go into a bit probably, I think there's a question later about how I personally like calculate that. But obviously intrinsic value is just one tool and relative value is also important and assessing like upside and downside. However, it is really important, I think at least, 
if you've calculated a rough range of values for what you believe their intrinsic value to be at present value, if you can buy cheaper than that, your downside is pretty much limited. So I think you should always try to like maximize your div and capital appreciation return. But as long as you have that intrinsic value mindset where you can feel relatively confident in your present value ranges, then you can make decisions within that and have the downside of, you know, that worst case scenario, you've still got the player cheap and that over several years, it will be shown that they are cheap for what you paid for them. But also in terms of whether you're looking for devs or capital appreciation, I think especially like for younger players on the platform, dividend wins and potential dividends have a huge impact on their capital appreciation. But I feel like obviously every trade has to make sense like fundamentally in terms of valuation wise. Just before you go on, has that become a lot more important now that we have matching engines? I think completely. Simply because I think as a result of the matching engine, it forces people to really think more about how much is this player worth in terms of their like intrinsic value because it's not, I don't know, I'm struggling to explain it because like before the matching engine, as like we had a system of how a player would rise in value through like how many shares were purchased. So it was really just demand and supply. Whereas now we can almost choose what we sell them for at any range. So before we had more of a decision of, do I want to buy him at this price because I think he can rise? And I think people weren't really thinking, can he return this price? Whereas now, because people have far more freedom at what point they want to sell the player at, and at what point they want to buy the player at, more so on the buy side, because like lots of people, also, I don't think they want to sell at a much cheaper price for some players. It has changed definitely with the matching engine because there are certain players out there who, particularly the lower end, will not return their price in dividends. You know, they're the kind of person that will deliver their price, their dividends once in a blue moon, but they were priced as though they would win maybe one or two dividends a year. That obviously has changed and that has changed things massively. I really love this question. And I love this question because I just fundamentally sort of didn't accept the premise that TAA, Sancho and Mbappe aren't the best cap app players on the market. I've looked, well, firstly at my own portfolio. Out of the top five risers in my portfolio, three of them are TAA, Sancho and Mbappe. And I think out of all the risers we'll see over the next year, in the top 10% of them will be TAA, Sancho and Mbappe. Mm. There isn't a delineation between divs versus cap app. I think cap app and divs go hand in hand. And even with players that won't return many divs, like, and we've seen incredible rises on Foden and Greenwood, and they don't appear to be div holds on the face of it, but they absolutely are, because what traders are doing is looking at will they return divs across the course of their career. And in terms of where they are versus their age peers, they are absolutely head and shoulders above. So it makes total sense that they're massively highly priced. Now, I don't hold either of them. And you know whether there's been a huge degree of FOMO involved in the last few days or not is obviously clearly there has. But those prices still make total sense to me that they would be cap app holds because I do believe that they're also div holds, albeit not right now. I think because matching engine really forces people far more to think about the price. I think before, because we had that security net almost of the instant sale price that slightly fluctuated dependent on demand, but was always offered there by FI, I think people started to take it almost for granted and got a bit lazy with their valuation. So just started to look at it in certain instances as this is his buy price at the current moment. If things improve, he's going to go higher and I can sell him for a profit or get dividends and also increase. And I don't think it was as much structured into people's buying decisions, what their real value was. It felt more just like a relative value. Everything was getting valued via relative value rather than intrinsic value. 
And I feel like what the matching engine has almost forced is that because the instant sell option isn't provided by FI, it's provided by all of us at what we think they're worth. And obviously some of us will put in bids way higher than what they're actually worth or way lower than what they're worth. And it's your decision as the holder what you accept because you don't have to sell if a bid is in that you do not think it's worth it. But because it's now the onus is on the market to come up with that insurance price of what we can get if we want to instantly liquidate, as a result, people have to think far more about the actual value because people are always going to bid slightly below their value or what they think their value to be is. So what the market's perception of the value is, is now so much more important. And as a Mm. result, intrinsic value is so much more important because otherwise you can't really understand whether you're getting a good price or a bad price. This is just all such great stuff, honestly. I wish we could talk about just this subject the whole episode. You know, I'm not joking, you laugh, but we did it for an hour with the webinar that we did on Monday. I literally talked about this. I was like, look, at the end of the day, even when you're bidding, as you said, Ella, when you're bidding for players, you should be bidding for what you think they're worth. It's very easy to fall into the trap, isn't it, of discounting or like, you know, having a discount off that buy price and being like, oh, that's a good deal. It's kind of like, as I said, I think on the webinar, if you go into Sainsbury's and you see a packet of cookies that's 25% off, but there's another packet of cookies full price, the same price, which is better value. Is it the one that's 25% off just because it's 25% off? Not necessarily. That's a very crude example, but it's kind of what we're seeing a lot of the time on the matching engines at the moment. People are buying players because they have a wide spread and they think that getting them at a discount means that they're good value when it doesn't necessarily mean that they are. I completely agree with that, yeah. In regard to whether they can beat the market growth, like Trent, Sancho and Mbappe, Basically, a researcher called Bessenbinder examined the returns of 26,000 stocks in the Center for Research and Security Prices database. So this basically contains all the common stocks listed on major US stock exchanges. And basically what he found was that the average stock traded for just seven years and lost money. The most common return for an individual stock over its lifetime was a loss of 100%. So if you'd invested in any stock from 1926 to 2015, you would have most likely come away poorer as only 48% of stocks delivered any gains. But basically what's relevant for FI is that he Bessenbinder found that only 4% of stocks attributed to all stock markets gains that exceeded the return of super safe one month treasury bills. Mm. So basically academics typically measure investment returns against those of short term treasuries because they're considered riskless. Whereas like the other 96% of stocks in aggregate just matched the market returns. So basically in real terms, only a tiny percentage of stocks actually beat the market. And when you look at FI, I asked FI market cap how much the market has risen in the last year. And he said that the tracker has grown 54%, which is what traders will feel. And market cap has grown 143%. So then I just quickly looked at the top 10 of the index and their capital appreciation only, no dividends included. And the average capital appreciation increase for the current top 10 in the last year was 128%. And that's including only a 16.8% rise for Neymar and a 10.2% rise for Pogba. So like in terms of beating the market, it's actually quite a few of the premium players that are actually beating the market as going off what FI market cap said. Basically, any player that has risen less than 54% has performed worse than the market. And if you look at all the year ago today prices, pretty much most players have either dropped like 10% or have got up to like a 50% return. Mm. And even a 50% return is worse than the market, which shows that it is really only a small percentage of the market that beats the market. You'll see that there's a tiny proportion of players that get like 100 to 400% in a year, but the vast majority don't beat the market. But like coming back to the question, 
Trent, Mbappe and Sancho have all massively outperformed the market, but they also have a lot of things on their side in terms of intrinsic relative and just like intuitive valuation through sentiment, career hopes, events, etc. That it could be argued that they're in a good position right now to continue to beat the market. And I think if you looked six months ago, you'd have said, oh, but Trent, Mbappe, Sancho have risen so much. Mm. Are they still able to keep rising capital appreciation wise as well as winning dividends? But like they've continued to beat the market whilst the vast majority haven't beat the market. And it's also really interesting to point out, isn't it, that the likes of Sancho, who is now the 10th top dividend earner ever or something ridiculous like that, considering he's only really... He's 20. He's 20. He's only been on FI for two, three years. Those dividends reinvested, rebought on buying other players with those dividends or buying more of that player and compounding them. It's actually never taken into account with some of these theories or speculative ideas that some players on the top end won't do very well. Of course they will. Some will do really well. Some won't do that well, just like any other area of the market. But when you're looking at the players that we've just discussed, not only does Sancho go from £10 to £14 very recently, he also won a shit ton of dividends. Winning a pound fifty's worth of dividends is no mean feat. That is the equivalent of going up one pound fifty. And I think people just don't really understand that. And it's commission free. Exactly. And if you re-compound that into other players, you compound that into the same player, and then those players grow. It's very hard to track that, isn't it? It's very hard to measure those compounded gains as much as the direct ones from players. I think I heard something. It was in the book Atomic Habits. It was like, basically, if you, and this is on personal development, but it can be applied to investments as well. If you improve 1% every day, by the end of the year, you'll have improved 37 times. If you think about that in terms of an investment standpoint, just getting like, I know you're never going to get 1% dividends a day, but like if you're even to think of you get 0.1% of your port value in dividends every day, your port value will 3.7 times higher by the end of the year. That's ridiculous returns. And then when you add in the fact that we've got a dividend increase coming, and obviously in the lead up to that, Trent, Sancho and Mbappé have been three of the bigger risers. The smart money in the market knows that they're going to continue to rise because the value of those holds has just gone up and they're great dividend holds and therefore great cap app holds. So, you know, if someone were to say, put your money on who the three biggest cap app holds for next year are, I probably would say Trent, Sancho and Mbappé. They're far safer as well, definitely. Well, I mean, that's one question done. (laughs) (laughs) gonna have to be culling a lot on my way if this is how we're gonna be going the next question is kind of three and one i'll ask them all and then rob will go to you first because this is kind of more your foray i think fi and tonic with their one billion pound goal firmly set out what style of marketing campaign do you believe fi should now implement to take the platform to the next level football index tw more for jesus (laughs) and this is from the discord Given your backgrounds, is there any open goals FI are missing when it comes to marketing the product? And then Football Index, Stephanie, how do you think FI could adapt or supplement their current marketing to attract traders from different demographics, females, older people, elderly people? I'd say there's a vast, barely tapped opportunity ready to join the platform. How could FI bring them in? So I think there's kind of two big concepts, really, with marketing that address these questions, really, and their reach and frequency. And at the moment, Football Index has had a low reach because it's been, I think, very heavily targeted at a core demographic. And I suspect it's only served as a relatively small number of people. And that's natural, isn't it, in marketing? Oh, yeah. Makes total sense. You don't start from the edges when you build a product. You start from the center and expand outwards. Exactly. And that makes total sense. And I think in the last year or so, with going bigger on television, some of the sponsorship deals with Forrest and Fulham, they're starting to go towards brand advertising. And it was really interesting on your podcast. Adam Cole mentioned brand advertising for the first time. And I think 
that is the thing that's the key next step. He needs to build the brand. Because at the moment, if you ask 100 people about Football Index, most people haven't heard of it. Or they vaguely know that it's kind of there in their periphery. And the other big thing in marketing is mental availability. The key thing for any adoption behavior is mental availability. It needs to be top of mind. And for that, people need to understand, A, that it exists, and B, have a decent sense of what the concept is. So as Football Index's marketing budget goes up massively, they need to essentially up the reach massively and then up the frequency because it's the frequency that drives the adoption behavior. So it's only when I saw four or five Twitter ads that I finally then took the plunge. Mm. And that's pretty common adoption behavior. So what they need is, when you ask that question, name me five gambling companies, Football Index is coming to mind and it's got that real mental availability. And I'm certain that that is very, very low amongst almost everyone. And that's just the size of the opportunity, I think. And that's what's so exciting about Football Index. We've got to 125 million or so capital in the market. And almost none of that mental availability that any core brand needs has been generated yet. So there's such a big opportunity. They've got a media buying agency, as far as I can tell, from Mm. Adam Cole's blogs, BBJ and K. Wow, you've done your research, haven't you? In terms of exactly what ads to buy, (laughs) because often we hear, you know, you don't do enough up north because they've they've focused a bit on London and that makes some sense. All of that would have been planned. All of that would have been done using a degree of modeling and, and done with a huge amount of expertise. So I have nothing to tell FI about exactly what ads to buy. I think they need to be focusing on massively boosting that reach and frequency and creating that mental availability and expanding the addressable audience. So if their core target was probably in that gambling space, they need to broaden it out and broaden it out. And that, I think, addresses to an extent. Football Index Stephanie's question is, as you do that, you start to capture more people in different demographics. I think one thing I would say for Football Index is, you've got someone brilliant there in Football Index Stephanie and other female members of the community, I'd be talking to them because it is fairly rare on gambling platforms that you have such an engaged audience and females in the audience. So I'd be talking to them and finding out what it is about that they found in Football Index that they found appealing and then expand upon that. In terms of open goals, I think there are two things that I find quite difficult with Football Index. And it's not the marketing, it's more just generally about how they grow the product. I think one is essentially the funnel that's creating in Football Index becomes a sieve when the product doesn't work very well. Mm, this is what I keep saying. I think I had the question in episode 100, Rob, I don't know if you were there. I don't think you were there in the audience. But one of the questions we got was what happens at max market cap when dividends stop increasing? And I think I've got a three point answer to this question. But one of the main points is if you have a fully functioning product, then exactly what you've just said, it doesn't act as a sieve. The retention is there and people stay on the platform rather than just wasted marketing dollars going down the toilet because the product isn't ready for it. And that's absolutely right. And the product I deal with in my day life in energy, we have a product sieve, not a product funnel. Half of our marketing spend, therefore, doesn't generate value. And that's partly to do with the operational realities of what I do. It's quite technical. But Football Index doesn't need that to happen. So it needs to resolve some of those technical issues as quickly as it can, because then that creates marketing efficiency. And then the final thing on the product, I think, is their PR. And I think, firstly, you know, and you saw it with the mistake the other day about the tracker milestone is firstly that they seem to, you know, overpromise and all the rockets and things like that. And, and the first step of PR is do not overpromise because the gap between reality and your words, that's the gap where skepticism lives and where you undermine mm. your own confidence. The second point on that, and this is the first time I've been really angry with Football Index in the whole time I've been on it. I thought it was appalling that they threw the PR social media officer under the bus today. Absolutely oh, yeah. in no world would I throw a member of my team under the bus for a mistake. It wasn't as though they did something egregious. They merely did their job by putting something up that they were told to do, and they would have been told to do. So not Mm. only do I, I don't believe them that it was a full thing by the social media person, but I think when you throw a junior member of your staff under the bus like that, it says something about your values as a business. 
And it's the first time I've been upset with Football Index and its values because I genuinely think it's not that kind of business and I think it let itself down today. And I'm more annoyed by the tweet apologising than I am about the mistake. If they have apologised last night and said, you know, we weren't ready, we thought we were, we're really sorry, please stop refreshing Twitter. <laughs> we would have forgiven them. But to wait the whole day and then to say that about one of their probably quite junior members of staff, I think really exacerbated the hurt there. And I'm, it's the first time I felt really let down by mm. behaviours of the business. Yeah, and I think for all the wrong Football Index have done in building the product, they've done way more right. I think it's important to say that. But Oh yeah, completely. In terms of the kind of values, the ones that they perpetuated and, and amplified have been kind of the responsible gambling element. We want to be so different from the bookies. We don't want to be a grey organisation that doesn't have a voice, that doesn't have a brand. You know, that's one of the reasons they come on the pod regularly. You know, I think Mike said it on the last time he was on, he was like, we don't want to be that corporate institution that doesn't speak to our customers whether it's kind of intimate in that one-on-one combat kind of way, or it's the wider kind of content style that they tend to do more often via Twitter and videos and their own podcast coming on this pod, for example. I really do think there's something there where whenever you don't go for that kind of corporate grey veal over a company, you put yourself at greater risk. And that's probably why a lot of these corporate institutions don't interact with their communities as much and their followers and stuff as much as they should. And a lot of upstarts now will do that way more because that's the way to build a brand, build community and the easiest way to market. But the bigger you are, the bigger the risk that you have, the more risk is entailed in any form of communication. So, you know, I've worked with some of the biggest companies in the world in my kind of day job in the past where you couldn't even speak to someone without getting a sign off or getting them on a show or doing some content with them, especially in a world of GDPR and so on and so forth. What I'm trying to say is that although we should be giving them slack for what they've done, I think they do always run the risk of doing those kind of things in the kind of way that they market their brand, if that makes sense. And I think we should hold them to a higher standard than we hold other gambling companies. Yeah, absolutely. That's what they are. So if they fall short. I think I've said that quite a lot on the podcast whenever people have compared them to gambling companies where we're like, oh, Bet365, don't let you do that. Or if Bet365 did that, like, what would you say? It's kind of like, well, you don't want to be compared to the very companies you're disrupting. Like, I don't think Monzo like being compared to Santander. Do you know what I mean? No. It's one of the reasons why I think I ranted a little bit about that because it fell so short of what they are. And it's the moment where there was that, you know, 99% of their behaviours are so admirable and they are so different. It was the moment where I was like, ah, you really let yourself down there. I think the point you make about gambling is really important because Football Index's defensible space is that it's a different kind of gambling market. It doesn't allow you to have to chase those losses and all of those really dangerous gambling behaviours. That does two things. I think one, I think that's a real selling point. You know, the fact that your stake isn't swept off the table, that should be, I think, really core to their sell. But also there's a bit of defensibility there because the gambling market is heavily regulated. And in terms of marketing, it's going to get even more regulated. There's no way the gambling companies are going to be able to advertise in the way they currently do in five years' time. So I think FI should make a real play about the fact that it's a different kind of gambler and then also spend its money now, really go heavily on the marketing because it might find it's got more constraints in marketing due to regulation in five years' time. And if anything, FI are kind of in the best position to do so, to kind of pivot on that. They're smaller. They have a more morally decent message. They're going to still be held to account the same way other gambling companies are by the ASA, the gambling authorities, any other advertising standard authorities. But they do have that opportunity to promote something that they have been promoting this whole time, the more long-term bet, the more responsible bet. And they're going to be able to pivot in a far easier way than like a Bet365 or a Betfair. Because it's sincere. And if you're sincere, then you're absolutely on really good ground. So again, it's such a brilliant opportunity for Football Index. And 
you can easily see just how easily they can bite into the incumbents and just how better prepared for the future they are. We're in such a good position as early adopters because all of this stuff is coming. The opportunity, both in terms of market size and market positioning, are massive. We are very, very lucky. LL, I know we've just gone on off on one for about 10 minutes there. So I don't know if you've got anything to add to this kind of marketing conversation, brand, values, et cetera. To be fair, I just completely agree with what both of you said. I don't really know. <laughs> I don't really know <laughs> the enough, easy enough way about out. I don't know enough about marketing to like actually provide anything of value. But from what both of you are saying, like I would completely agree with everything you've said. And I think it is one of the unique selling points for someone that is maybe very big into gambling, seeing FI as a way that you don't lose your stake like you don't lose all of your stake even if you get things wrong and that you can still retain some value of what you've put in even if it goes terribly wrong that should be really attractive and to try get in the people that do gamble a lot that is probably a really good way I'd imagine but I don't really know enough <laughs> fair enough we'll let you off on that one after so much value you've added so far football index barman for football index LL so there we go that's probably a reason why we put these questions in this order can you discuss the player valuation model which we talked about last week and what potential risks are attached to having continuous growth built into any model? Now, this is an interesting question. Yeah, so basically, just initially, you buy financial assets, obviously, for like the cash flows you expect to receive, which is how you work out what their value is, or at least what its value is if it performs in line with your expectations. So that's important to remember. Also, everyone's perception of intrinsic value will be different as there are many estimations you need to make like at every level of the calculation. So I think when you're doing your own, it's best to like be vaguely accurate than precisely wrong. So do multiple calculations with slightly different feasible estimates so that you can build a range of present value as that's always going to be far, far more likely to the truth than just one calculation. But then basically you need to adjust these cash flows to the present value by applying like a discount rate. And this takes into consideration the risk of these cash flows not being delivered. So that's the basis of a discounted cash flow. So the one I use for FI is a growing annuity cash flow. So that's a cash flow that grows at a constant rate for a specified period of time. So I use that one because that applies growth rate to the dividends earned. Because obviously, if you structure in what you think this player will earn over their career per season at the current dividend structure, then if you just apply a growth rate to the dividends, then instead of trying to figure out what the dividend increases will be, et cetera, et cetera, you can have a more accurate model. So in the calculation, you need a cash flow, a growth rate, a discount rate, and a time period. So for FI, the cash flow is their average yearly dividends, one under the current system for a set period of time. And then the growth rate would be whatever you presume the average growth rate of dividends to be over that specified period of time. And then the discount rate would be the uncertainty of dividends. So someone that you're pretty sure are going to get a certain amount of dividends, you can put a lower discount rate or someone that's more unlikely will have a higher discount rate. And obviously a higher discount rate means a lower present value because certainty is hugely, hugely valuable. So as a result, it should be reflected into the price. You can just type that even like growing annuity calculation into Google and you'll see the calculation and you can then like plug it in for yourself and you can either do it in like one to three year chunks and then add them all together. If you think there's going to be different values in all those time periods and stuff like that, like for instance, I think probably we're going to see for the next three to five years, larger dividend increases. And then as we grow in market cap, we're probably going to see, you know, a slight reduction in how large the dividend increases to be. And, you know, there could be a time where like even the dividend increases are just, they remain the same. Once we're at quite a high 
level in terms of market cap. But yeah, I've just found that calculation works really to get, you know, a strong range of present value ranges. And in terms of the risks, having a continuous growth built in, the risk is obviously that you might be wrong. And that's why I think you should always try and be cautious with your estimations. I personally prefer to be cautious because if you think about it, if you're cautious with your estimations and you still find a player to be like grossly undervalued, either you're like a complete fool or you found a player that's going to make you a lot of money. I said the exact same thing in the, I keep quoting the webinar, I'm sorry, but one of the things I said was exactly that. The way I try and do my own in my head modeling is I base it on current dividends. And if they're undervalued via the current dividend structure, and I presume that it will go up in the next however many years, however much, then you found the player that's not only undervalued based on current dividends for their career, they're even more undervalued because dividends are going to go up. You don't know how much by in the next however many years, but that's an easy estimation to make. I completely agree with that. But also, whilst we're talking about like intrinsic value, we also need to remember that like there's multiple valuation tools. Just because intrinsic value, I believe, and many believe should have the highest weighting factor to it. And some people are like only use it, but like I think to be more well-rounded, it's good to use it or to understand it at least and have a relatively high weighting factor on it, in my opinion. But you do also need to take into account there's several factors that can influence price. So like on last week's podcast, when Sam was talking about the intuitive heuristics, where it's like, I think it's far, far easier to value a player in your head just through relative means. So I think as the platform grows and the market grows, I think you'll start to see people that maybe aren't thinking about it in terms of an intrinsic way. They'll start to look at players and think, well, relatively, they're cheap or they're expensive. And that will start to govern some buying decisions. And as a result, if you're a step ahead of that, just like with anything, you're going to make a lot of money. So it's not to say that intrinsic value is the be all and end all. It's just saying intrinsic value is really important and it should underlie most of your investment decisions, in my opinion. But it's not to say that you can't think about things relatively or you can't take into consideration other factors, because obviously if you want a really good decision, it should fit everything. There's a lovely sweet spot, isn't there, when you see both happening at the same time. So it's been really obvious that Foden and Greenwood's prices have essentially been semi-pegged together by lots of traders. So you know when one rises and the other one has a good performance, the rise is coming. It's really obvious. And there is intrinsic value in both of them. Now, whether it's exactly at their current price or not is up for debate, and different traders will have different views on that. But when you can see the intrinsic value, plus you can see how the market is essentially weighting different players against each other, you can almost predict with sort of nine out of 10 certainty which players are about to have the next rise. Yeah, I think mm. that's really true. And I think you actually saw that the other night after Foden had such a huge rise, it literally took one goal from Greenwood and he was up a pound. Yeah, I mean, it's phenomenal, isn't it? Well, phenomenal if you own, phenomenal in terms of the market. Just to be excited by the potential, yeah. It shows also how ready people are willing to invest into certain players. Like they clearly have had an idea. And I think there's a question on it in terms of like the FOMO element later on. But like, I think if it was a player you were looking at before and you see something that triggers something, it shows how many people clearly had Greenwood in their head, especially because of the Foden rise. And then as soon as he does anything to somewhat justify an increase, people pile into him. Mm. I think we'll move on because we are going pretty long here. FBI Trader, it's got one question for each of you. That's nice. Rob, do you think FR are leaning towards attracting more trading exchange traders? And how would you ensure marketing doesn't alienate traditional gamblers looking for a quick buzz return on match days? I think it's a really interesting question because obviously they are 
completely different audiences and in a way one set of marketing messages could alienate the other. However, I think the risk of that is relatively low and I could be proved wrong because I think that the kind of quick buzz return gamblers are the product as much as football index and their players are the product. Because what I think you are doing when you are talking to the serious traders and you know again Adam talked about hedge funds and corporates is you're saying to them that there's this massive growing user base of a mixture of traditional gamblers and people that are kind of semi-serious traders they are the product because that's the growth potential that your fund will buy into so I think there's a really neat way of essentially having your core marketing strategy being a mass marketing strategy and focusing largely on gambling but then sort of something more behind the scenes when you're talking to those serious, particularly the corporates, when you've got the almost investment portfolio just showing them, almost using those traditional gamblers as part of your sell and as part of what the product is. LL, what experience or knowledge in stocks has benefited you most on FI? I don't find obviously like the accounting side needed for stock trading. That's not relevant at all really for FI. However, I think like the market principles are really relevant. I feel like it has really helped me become quite comfortable and unfazed by daily volatility, which I think some people, especially on like the Twitter community, get far too worked up about. And I think some level of like portfolio management has been beneficial in terms of understanding relative and intrinsic value and also like the whole emotional side of trading, because I think that sometimes gets a little bit undervalued because you need to learn pretty much how to eliminate emotion from your trading. And like, obviously, that's really hard and it's like a muscle you need to actively train and get better at. Mm. But like it really does massively improve your chances of getting consistent and strong returns. Because like it's the classic thing of like money doesn't care about you, the market doesn't care about you, and the stock doesn't care about you. That's especially relevant in FI where like stock price has literally no relevance on the player and like the player's performance. In that way, like you have to be unemotional because at every level of the process from like selecting which players to value from the entire valuation process and your estimates to then timing the buy and then timing the sell, it's really vital that you have as much emotional detachment as possible so that you can get like completely comfortable and unfazed by making money and by losing money. Because if you're able to do that, your decisions will be significantly better. And I think that's been really important, really helped me in getting consistent and strong returns on FI. And also, I think it's also just about like learning yourself as a trader through FI or through whatever, because like if you're able to be honest with yourself and tailor your trading strategy so that your weaknesses aren't relevant and that your strengths are emphasized, then you're putting yourself in a massive advantage. I think that almost football index could traders could benefit from being able to hide their profit and loss and their daily and weekly profit and loss from themselves 100%. and then not focus on it anymore. I sent you a DM on this because it was funny but because I deposited massively more than my normal portfolio amount during the downturn for the whole downturn my profit and loss was a minus figure so I had no strong sense of whether I was (laughs) up or down that much over that period because it was just fluctuating all over the place as my bids were being changed or being matched or not so I was completely relaxed by however much it was going down because I frankly had much less of an idea than if it had been stable I learned from that like basically ignore the minutiae of the daily fluctuations and just trust your strategy. Mm. I agree completely. I don't think actually looking at your profit and loss is helpful really at all. It should be used as like a general indicator of how you're doing, but you shouldn't get caught up on like how much you're down, how much you're up. You should look at it, see what it is. If it's a huge difference, check the market, check what's happening, see if any of your decisions or like your buying or selling decisions for the future have been affected by it. If they have, act accordingly. If not, just forget about it and don't check it. And actually recently in the market dip, 
that was what, like four days. I just checked FI like twice a day and just didn't really care because it hadn't really impacted any of my selling decisions. So I didn't really have any reason to keep checking. Yeah, it's such an interesting way of going about things. And I really do think that a lot of traders, if they could go back to that downturn, they would have done things a lot differently. Got loads more questions, but before we do get into that, I need to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by The Athletic. The Athletic is a subscription-based sports news site delivering in-depth sports coverage featuring football reporters you know and love like David Ornstein, James Pierce, Sam Lee and Rafa Honigstein. Thank God David Ornstein broke that Saka finally signed a contract for Arsenal today. Otherwise, <laughs> that was going to be the end for me, guys. No more fig cast, no more fig. The Athletic is telling you stories you won't find anywhere else. No ads or clickbait. It's just great sport writing. So for 50% off your annual subscription to the best sports writing around, go to theathletic.co.uk slash fig. And it's only £2.49 a month if you go for their annual deal. I'm going to ask the fated question, Rob, have you been buying anything that costs more than £2.49 recently? I have. It's my wife's birthday this month, so I've been quite a lot of things. There's a really cool LED. I should hope things that are more than £2.49. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Big spender for my wife. Big spender. It has a thousand times zoom and it's really cool. Well, I might just buy a second one for myself. <laughs> I actually bought a camera yesterday. It cost a lot more than £2.49. I was shocked. LL? <laughs> well, it's my mum's birthday coming up, so I got her flowers to get delivered. Oh, that's nice. Lovely. I should again hope it was more than £2.49. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is also brought to you by Index Track, the ultimate portfolio tracking tool. See how you performed versus the market growth, your share expiry dates, interesting portfolio stats and more, all from an upload of your transaction history. And now you can see what shares you hold that are eligible for in-play dividends over the next 30 days. Head over to indextrack.co.uk and use the code FIG for your first month free. Next question, FI Ben, very excited to listen to the cheese man himself. What do you focus more on, per 90 data to find prospects or per match data? He's goading me. He's goading me into mention Javier onto Veros because he's just so good on the per 90s with a tiny sample size. But I genuinely do love per 90 data. It's a really good way of spotting people before essentially their PB averages or the PB peaks become obvious. And you have to take real care with it. And if you've got a sample of less than 800 or 1,000 minutes, you are on very thin ice. But it's enabled me to spot when a player is putting in the kind of performance that if something changed for them, they would hit big, big scores. And it was really the big example of it for me was Nkunku because I saw that he was starting to get more and more minutes for Leipzig and his performances on a per 90 basis were incredible. It was just really obvious that he was going to be a good PB hold and obviously a good age. I think I got in there at sort of pound fifty odd because the per 90s gave me that hint. But you had to look at more than just the per 90 data to know it. You had to look at all the context. I think it's underrated because people think it's, you know, they're not starting so they can't be very good or people can misuse the data if they don't have a big enough sample size, which is why sort of Javier Antifiros is a bit of a joke because he has amazing, amazing per 90s. And if he could do it over 90 minutes, he would score like 400 every week. But obviously that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, you have to use them wisely, but I think they're a great stat. I don't know, LL, do you have any thoughts on this? I think I would go for per match, like on a general basis, but like per 90, as Rob said, like per 90 is useful. It's just don't, put too much weighting into it and don't take it as like the be all and end all because it needs to be used with several other factors so like as he said if you just look at the per 90 but you can have the best per 90 stats in the world if you play 10 minutes every week you're never going to win any dividends it is more circumstantial so if you have all the other evidence then per 90 is really decent to find prospects before they become commonly known like an mm. Nkunku but for like most players that aren't unknowns, I think per match is probably more relevant most of the time. Awesome. We'll move on to this question from K. 
Kiefer, K-I-E-F-E-R. For everyone on the cast today, that's a new one. I've never seen someone shorten podcast in just the second half of the word. That's very strange. No capital C. In 12 month times, do you think it will be normal to see players over £10? Will £10 be the new £1? Absolutely not. (laughs) I mean, what will be the new £1 though? Probably like three or four pounds, I guess. I don't know. I was trying to do some crude maths about this because if you think that to get to a billion pound market cap, and I suppose there'll be an exponential element to that. So year two will be more growth than year one. So even if you had two times growth in the next year, players around four pounds or more could be the only ones really that could get to over 10 pounds. So at the moment, there were 27 players over four pounds. So I can't imagine there'll be more than 27 players over 10 pounds in 12 months time. That's my prediction. 27 players over 10 pounds in 12 months time. For £10 to be the new £1, there would literally have to be a 900% rise in the <laughs> average the average £1. And I don't think we're going to have a 900% rise in the £1. Especially because like, even if we were to, like that would be 10x. And like, if we were to 10x and be at like 1 billion, it's highly unlikely that that's going to be completely evenly spread across the market. Like that doesn't happen. And 10x can mean depth of market as well. So we could have more money in the market, but not necessarily higher prices which would just see more liquidity. So market cap doesn't necessarily mean that if we 10x, Sancho is going to be £140. It might mean that he's like £50, but it is also to do with kind of the depth of the market and the thickness of the market. So it's, it's important for, that, for people to understand that, isn't it, LL? Yeah, definitely. That's a really good point, I think. F.I. Van Gromit here. <laughs> Laugh every time I see that. Are there absolute truths in F.I. player values or do we operate more within a framework of F.I. relativism? So absolute truth is something that is true at all times and in all places. So it is something that is true no matter what the circumstances. So obviously by the very nature of like a player's career, which have end outcomes that are so highly circumstantial, they obviously can't have an absolute truth. But obviously there is a theory that if we're able to see every atom and its direction, which is theoretically possible, we would therefore be able to predict where it will go. And obviously then at each frame, we'll be able to predict every single frame, which would mean that theoretically you're able to predict the future so like if you have that determinist like view there is obviously an absolute truth to valuation but like to stay relevant to the question if we were to like fast forward 20 years and look back and know exactly what the dividend growth rate was exactly what the cash flows were each payout you'd obviously be able to work back today to know exactly what the present value is but obviously that's never going to be possible so you just need to like hope for the best but it is definitely more a like fi relativism because relativism is the idea that views are relative to different perceptions and considerations and intrinsic value calculations are completely up to the perception and the consideration of the person doing them. So it has to be obviously FI relativism. I'm glad you answered that. I did politics and philosophy at uni, so I ought to be able to answer philosophy questions, but I can't remember a single thing of it. I mean, clearly there is value and that has a degree of stability to it, but 100%. I mean, we just can't know it. That's why Fife Williams is this great work, because if we knew it, then there wouldn't be a market. We'd yeah. know who to it would buy. just be set prices. <laughs> yeah. I was reading an interesting article by this neurologist that was saying our entire perception of reality is different to one another based on like a variety of factors. So like what may honestly appear as like reality to one person will be completely different to another person. So like in that sense, everyone's reality is relative. I mean, that's how you can think that Leno is a better goalkeeper than Foster, isn't it? I mean, that's just (laughs) fact. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unearth there. I think that in terms of the, (laughs) apart from Leno being obviously a better keeper than Foster, the framework of FI relativism, I think we talk a lot about kind of the absolute truths 
NFI player values. It's very hard for anything to be absolute, isn't it? Because we don't know when dividends will stop. We don't know how to model a career of a player who's younger. I was talking today, I'm going to plug the webinar again, I'm sorry. But I said something about how in terms of the career dividend expected value of a player, you have to put more of a weight on a player's value the older they are. So you can judge Messi by his career dividends. Probably 70 to 80% of his value you could pretty easily model for the rest of his career. Whereas with Harvey Elliott, how much of his price can you attribute to career dividends? It's very hard to say. I'd probably peg it at lower, 20, 30%, because it's a lot more variable. So let's see how that goes. And that's why you can't also use intrinsic value for everything. You have to take it into account. But like for someone like a Harvey Elliott, relative value does have to come into it as well. And like all the other factors of a player and what makes it more probable for this player to succeed and have a long career, that comes into it. Whereas like obviously intrinsic value for a 17 year old, it's not relevant. No, 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 no. Because like we don't yet have enough data. And when we do start having enough data, they usually either rocket or fall. We got a question here from J-A-F-I. How do you separate the thoughts of FOMO against a sensible trade, which everyone is jumping on? Example of Neymar since the announcement. Yeah, that's a really difficult one because obviously Neymar rising since the announcement is a hugely sensible thing and people buying Neymar are doing an absolutely sensible thing because his both his media and PB returns are going to get higher and he is one of the few media and PB hybrid players out there. So I get around that because part of my strategy has been around being first and not necessarily literally the first, but always trying to buy my players for the thing after the thing that everyone else is buying. So when people were buying Germany a few months ago, I was buying Italy or the next one. And when people were buying the Premier League, I was buying France because that way I knew that I was in before the peak and the hump. And then I was really ignoring everything else that was happening. So if someone else over somewhere else was going up two pounds in the space of a week, like, it wasn't part of my plan. It wasn't part of my strategy. And I just stuck to the plan. Can I ask a question quickly? Who do you think is the biggest riser on the 9th of July? Been having this debate with a few people. Who would rise more, Sancho or Messi? Who would rise more, Neymar or Greenwood? Who do you peg as the person that rises most on the dividend announcement? And you can caveat with depending on how big the dividend increase could be. Well, I think it's the same no matter what the div increase is. Okay. Because I think it affects everyone equally. I think clearly there were only a small number of people that could be in it is the people we've named. My guess is Trent, because he is such a good peak dividend earner, he's such a good age, and because the matrix isn't changing. Obviously, he's had a big rise already, so that might dent that. My guess, not that I think I'll be right, is Trent. Okay. I have absolutely no idea, and I'll probably get it wrong. But like, I was actually thinking recently, when you value how many dividends a player is going to win each season, you're taking into account one set dividend table. However, in this situation, our dividend table has adjusted partway through the season. So like, for any player playing after the dividend increase, because the dividend is coming in from the 9th of July as well, or at least I think so. But like that's basically just extra dividends. For instance, considering the Champions League and the Europa League is getting played in August, I don't think that's something people have necessarily factored in enough because any dividends won in August, whatever the increase is, that's just a complete extra to that person's value. Mm. What do you think the increase is going to be, LL? I have no idea, honestly. What would you be disappointed with? Honestly, I'd be disappointed with anything below around like, anything below like 30%, I think wow. would be bad. Do you think 30% is enough to take us to the beginning no, of next season? Absolutely not. So it has to be bigger than that, right? So it has to be bigger than that. But like, I personally would be completely fine if it was around 50% or higher, 
Like, I personally would not really care if it was around 50% or higher. I do understand the arguments, though, on the timeline of saying how, like, we need to have a really big increase. Because if we want to go really aggressive, and when you take into consideration the fact that Adam Cole was saying about every marketing budget combined is dwarfed by the current marketing budget for like this year, I think when you take into the consideration that, it's probably more likely that we're going to have a really big dividend percentage increase rather than a smaller one. Especially if it will be the biggest gap between a dividend increase after this one, if that makes sense. So after this one, the next dividend increase will be next August, I suppose. So that would be 13 months, basically. And that would be the biggest gap between dividend increases ever. You'd hope that it's pretty big. Pando's pretty strong on this, isn't he? I mean, he thinks it needs to be massive to not get burnt out and us not burn through it. Yes. Because we will burn through it as traders if it's not big enough. That is true, yeah. I'm kind of in the FBI trader camp that if I don't expect big things, then I don't get disappointed. So I'm mentally preparing myself for something like 50%. But knowing what we know about what Adam Cole's ambition is, it probably needs to be near 100%. Mm. I think we could see probably 100% or maybe even higher. I don't know. I mean, I hope everyone's (laughs) right that's going for 100% plus. (laughs) I hope we are. That's kind of what I'm gunning for. Just very, very quickly. I think for me, it hasn't really ever been a factor because like I'm usually too scared to jump on rises because I feel like I've missed it. And if I hadn't thought of buying the player before, you shouldn't buy. But I think FOMO can be used positively in the instance where if you already have decided everything and want to buy more, but you don't want to invest it straight away, if you start seeing them rise, that is a fine time to invest. But do not ever buy a player just because you're seeing it rise that you've never valued, that you've never analyzed, that you've never looked into before the point of seeing them rise. That's crazy. Yeah. The Football Economist, most overvalued and unvalued stat or number when evaluating a player's value. As for a stat, I think maybe Lua Lua mentioned it a while ago on the podcast, but I feel like something like ball recoveries are relatively important. Mm, you um, did mention it, yeah. Because I think, obviously when it comes to high peaks, goals are important, as was mentioned even on last week's pod, but the underlying stats are also necessary for players to have enough a high enough base score so that when their team wins and when they score, they have a really high probability of winning PB. And I think something like ball recoveries is a really overlooked one because if you can combine that action with another action, you're getting a lot of points in a really short space of time. So like one example I was thinking of is a player like Keita. He's one that's known as like having a notoriously high PB per 90, but obviously has other factors holding back his price. But like in terms of solely PB, he's a player who makes a lot of ball recoveries and then goes quite often to drive forward with the ball and complete a dribble before then making a pass. And often he makes key passes or chances created. So like as it was said on last week's podcast that a player actually is only on the ball for a few minutes in a 90 minute game. And as the performance matrix is based quite heavily on on ball actions, when you have a player that in the space of like five seconds or more is able to combine multiple scoring points, then that massively benefits their PB in my opinion. Obviously the most overvalued stat is PB average. It's almost uncontroversial to say so. I think the controversial thing I will say is PB scores generally can sometimes be overlooked at because I think what you, well not overlooked at because they're the most important thing and obviously they're the thing that is the best guide to future. But obviously if someone's doing massively brilliantly on the PB matrix, that's starting to be priced in already. So if you're looking for those kind of big risers, actually you need to be looking at their real football stats. So I think, as LL said, recoveries is one, but we know from the work that I think, is it Sam Tarby's done? About what actually drives the scores, you know, it's goals, it's key passes. So I think looking at those stats, looking at the actual football stats, 
is really important and not just relying on the PB stats, even the useful stats like, for instance, your top three PB peaks or top five PB peaks, which are obviously a really great guide to whether someone can win. Look at the real football stats, not just the FI stats. I also think crosses are overvalued in the sense that I feel like there's so much made about them, about how it's a crossing matrix. And I think those comments are just like such nonsense because like, yeah, they can be important to certain players. But for the vast majority of players, like Quadrado even on Tuesday night, he had a 277 star man and had four crosses, but he's a player that like you'd think has a lot of crosses. So like there's lots of players that even without crossing can get huge scores. But like if you believe what you read on Twitter, it's a crossing matrix. I mean, it's just a complete myth. And I'd love if there to be a way to kind of kill it. Maybe that should be the marketing strategy I have. I should hire a plane and just fly it over the country saying crosses aren't that relevant to the matrix. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. I think we'll, we'll leave it at that, really, won't we? <laughs> it's an annoying one because it's just so false. And I think Carl Brown and others have debunked it on a number of occasions. He does a great job, doesn't he, Kay Brown? What a man. What a man. Well, that's all we've got time for. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me. Rob, where can people find out more about you? At Rob Jesus on Twitter. And yourself, LL. Just Football Index LL on Twitter. Amazing. Thank you very much for joining, Gleds. If you guys are commuting right now, stay safe out there. And if you are one of those essential workers, then keep doing whatever you're doing. Is essential workers still a thing? Or everyone's working now, aren't they? I don't really know anymore. I've been working from home for so long. Non-commute crew, shout out to you two. Nice little rhyme there. Sorry if we didn't get to answer all your questions. I should have actually culled a lot because we've gone about an hour and 20. Football Index is a gambling platform. Only bet where you can afford to lose and stop when the fun stops. I thought after the first question we would go for three hours. We did not. There we go. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Have a great day. 